podcast listener. Even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Yeah, thanks for joining me here at the pod. Boss man, my co-host, is on vacation. It's just me and you and a special guest. But first, a little bit of housekeeping. If you're listening to this on Thursday, we are hiring an intern slash apprentice for the winner. If you want to come join the team, go check out the TMBA blog. And if you want to know about stuff like this, subscribe to the newsletter. We will keep you up to date. So speaking of up to date, today's topic, I'm guessing there's going to be some of you out there who might roll your eyes or even be tempted to switch off. Let's just face it. Let's talk about it. There's backlash about today's topic, but if you're interested in your financial future and drilling down on the nature of markets, how to manipulate them, how to take advantage of opportunities, I encourage you to hang for this one because what we're talking about today, cryptocurrencies are not going away. So to talk about what's going on in the world of cryptocurrencies, we brought on friend of the show and regular guest Taylor Pearson, who recently wrote an extremely in-depth report called The State of Bitcoin in the fall of 2018, which we're going to link to all this stuff so you can get up to date. It made it to the front of Hacker News, and there's a ton of interesting takeaways from this report, and we're going to talk about them today including you know, how do you value this stuff? What are the methodologies for doing so? And what's the very near future for cryptocurrencies and how are they going to affect our businesses? We will touch on a broad range of issues, including some of Taylor's thoughts on how cryptocurrencies differ from other forms of investment, how to distinguish the hype from the opportunity, and whether or why the Bitcoin backlash is happening. Sort of the peak of prices with Bitcoin and Ethereum and the, the sort of broader crypto ecosystem happened in late December, early January. And since then, sort of the total value, if you add up the market cap of all these different projects, is down something like 80, 85 percent. One of the things I noticed is my my Twitter account tracks very like the number of new followers I get tracks very closely to the market. At like peak market with like the same number of tweets per month, I was getting like five to 10x the followers as like bottom of market, you know, presumably tweeting like roughly the same quality. I think that's mostly attributable to the price. How would you describe like this moment in time? September, October, the fall of 2018. Where are we in like the world of cryptocurrency right now? One of the differences between these crypto assets, crypto tokens, whatever you want to call them, and internet companies is they were like liquid on day one, right? Like you couldn't buy and sell Netscape before it IPO'd, right? So there wasn't this sort of like constant market indicator of like, how is everyone feeling about it? And they're also unique in that there's no sort of agreed upon valuation methodology. So like 
a lot of people in the 90s thought these internet companies were going to be worth, you know, 100 times their price to earning ratio, but they like still agreed like, you know, this is a company, it has future cash flows, we're going to discount those future cash flows to try to estimate how much it's worth. Whereas if you look at something like Bitcoin, which is trying to be like a form of money, it's like, how do you value that. Like there's no future cash flows. You're not going to earn a return on that from the form of like dividends or something like if you owned a share of a company. So the result of that is it tends to be very like what you call like reflexive. So like, you know, everyone gets really excited about it and there's no reason to sort of like tamper that down. Well, in the internet age, you could say, well, pets.com just is this dumb idea. It sucks. You know, like nobody wants like order their kitty litter online or whatever. Certainly, if it takes you know a week to get there, are there people saying that with compelling thrust about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, like that? Hey, this is just a bad, dumb idea that everybody's getting excited about. Paul Krugman wrote an op-ed for the New York Times. Paul Krugman is an economist. He won a Nobel Prize. He's been a, he's writing an op-ed for the New York Times for I don't know twenty years or something. He sort of like represents this camp of people that was like this is just like a bad idea and this is anti-progress. Like this is setting money back. Like money, you know, our existing money already works better than that. I think the the sort of like divide I see is we call it like Keynesian and Austrian economics. Keynesian economics is named after John Maynard Keynes and it was sort of popularized after the Great Depression where sort of like the lesson from the Great Depression was, you know, if you start having this recession and you don't sort of expand the balance, you don't increase government spending, that recession can turn into a depression. And so what you need to do is you need to like find a way to you know let the central bankers basically manage that. So like what happened with quantitative easing, sort of like Greenspan, who was the chairman of the US Federal Reserve from I think he took over in like eighty five or eighty six up through about two thousand seven. That was like very much his policy that as soon as sort of something started to go bad, he would sort of inject money into the system. And, and Bitcoin is sort of counter that, right? There isn't a central banker that can manage the monetary policy. So what's the other side of it? It's Keynesian and then... Austrian. So like the Austrian economics is this big school within Bitcoin. It's not very popular sort of within academics, but sort of like the figureheads are guys like Friedrich Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, whose name I might be pronouncing wrong, Murray Rothbard, their counter argument is that actually this manipulation is is worse than if you just let things play out naturally. That what happens with central bankers is they actually end up making these recessions worse. Either one because you know, sort of the, the theory with Keynesianism was okay, we have these economic cycles and we can use sort of like intelligent planning to smooth things out, which meant all right, when the recession came, the market started going down, we would increase the monetary supply, we would inject more money into the system. And that would pull the market back up. And then when the market was high, we would increase interest rates, we would lower the, the monetary supply, and we would sort of pay off that debt we accumulated. But like in practice, that hasn't actually happened. You can look at the US federal debt levels, basically every country, Japan, all of Europe, like the, the debt levels just keep going up. They don't actually like pay off those debt in the good times. Like the deficit went up in the US from like 2000 to 2007, which is like a big bull market. The deficit has gone up from 2009 to 2018. And so sort of the Austrian point of view as well, one, the Keynesians don't even, you know, sort of do what they say they're going to do. And even if they do, it would be worse because actually they just like exacerbate these cycles and you end up with uh, like no one really knowing 
what their their money is going to be worth in the future. So it's like, you know, the US dollar was worth 86% of its value was lost to inflation over the last 100 years, something like that, like a huge amount of money. And so you end up with a lot of what they would call like malinvestment. So like, you know, oh, this dollar is, you know, it's going to be worth less today than it is tomorrow. So like, I should just like find something to throw this into and spend a bunch of money on it, even if it's not necessarily a good use of money. So the, the Austrian school is sort of like, you need this, what they call like sound money. Gold would be a certain type of sound money where you don't have a central banker, you don't have a state that can sort of inflate away someone's ability to store their wealth. So the Austrian crowd is very popular in Bitcoin. Wouldn't that be a little bit counterintuitive then that the people who want this sound money are going to this most avant-garde of options and suggesting that, oh, let's do something that has no agreed upon valuation method that's highly volatile, that's going up and down, and no one can really agree what it's going to be in the future. So if you were to look at sort of like Austrian economist, there's a subsegment of those that I think what they see in Bitcoin is that some of the difficulties with gold are one, it's it's easier to confiscate just because it's physical, so it's sort of harder to resist state action. You know, like if you're in Venezuela or Argentina or somewhere and they say we're gonna confiscate all your gold, it's you know easier to find gold than Bitcoin as opposed to something that's like digital. So it's it's harder to to seize or harder to censure. It's like more transferable, right? You can send a Bitcoin to someone in Malaysia, if you're in Portugal or whatever, Bitcoin is more divisible. So you can sort of divide it into much smaller pieces. So if you want to buy a coffee with your Bitcoin or you want to pay $50, you can do that. Whereas with gold is very difficult. So sort of the broader argument as well, Bitcoin is like gold. And the sort of key property they talk about there is what's called like the stock to flow ratio. So just because of the way gold is distributed geologically, like in the rocks, it's really hard to mine. And so at most, you know, over the last 100 years or something, the most gold anyone's ever been able to mine in a single year is something like 2% of whatever the existing supply is. So like you can only inflate it at 2% a year just because you can't get it out of the ground any faster than that. And Bitcoin has a similar model, right? You've suggested in your, your recent writings that, well, it's well known that there's how much Bitcoin there is left to be mined. Right. There's 21 million that is determined programmatically. It's in the protocol. And it would be at this point, you know, very, very difficult to change that. So there's, you know, gold is very mildly inflationary, say like one to 2% a year. Bitcoin is going to be deflationary. It's going to be, you know, literally 0% a year. You can't, at some point, you're not going to be able to make any more of it. I know this stuff can be dense. Thanks for hanging with us here. I still struggle with this stuff too, but I can report that I am now invested in Bitcoin. I've taken a small, amount, very small, less than 1% of my net worth and put it into Bitcoin to see where this stuff goes. I want to be in the game as I'm talking about it with you guys and with Taylor. I thought it might be useful to get Taylor to drill down on exactly why he disagrees so fundamentally with Bitcoin skeptic Paul Krugman. And in doing this, Taylor is going to quote one of our favorite authors, Nassim Taleb, author of great books like Anti-Fragile and Skin in the Game. And here, Taylor is going to focus on this idea of market efficiency. This refers to the degree to which market prices honestly reflect all available relevant information, which is crucial for us to make decisions about how and where to invest. So one of sort of Taleb's insights or one of his lines is a lot of what looks efficient isn't actually efficient. It's just hiding risk somewhere. So like you think about what happened in the 2008, like the whole mortgage bubble. 
you could have said in 2006, like, oh, no, this is actually we've come up with this brilliant new scheme. And what we can do is we can like help a lot more people get homes and we can take the debt from those homes and we can, you know, cut them up in this financial way and like, you know, diversify them away. And actually what you get is just more people are able to own homes and you have like a new safe investment vehicle in the form of these mortgage-backed bonds, which, as we found out, was like not the case. What was happening was actually there was a bunch of hidden risk that was built up in that system because people didn't understand how it worked. And then there was this big blow up. So sort of like as it applies to Bitcoin and money, I mentioned earlier that from whatever, 2000, 2007, the Federal Reserve was printing money. If you look at sort of the debt to GDP ratio of developed countries, it is trending up and has been trending up for quite some time, roughly since Nixon took the US off the gold standard, which is I think 1973, the soft gold standard. And so it's unclear. How do economists, I mean, I look at these graphs, Taylor, of this deficit issue that we've had a ticker in Times Square since we were kids mentioning how high the national debt is. Are there people who think that this is a non-problem? Is there anybody who thinks the cows aren't going to come home? Paul Krugman. Krugman's argument to this would be, well, this debt-to-GDP ratio is not higher than we saw post-World War II, which we were able to pay off, and that like, it went way back down. And so by, you know, by historical precedent, this is within some reasonable range, and you know, we'll be able to sort of reduce federal spending and like, increase productivity in the economy and gradually pay this off. So yeah, the, the sort of broader Keynesian school would argue that this is normal, and like what happened with quantitative easing, you know, that was the right response. Is it fair to say that for a large percentage of Bitcoin investors, they view it as shorting the U.S. dollar or the U.S. government or this national debt? Yeah, I would say that's exactly how they view it. They view it as a hedge on sort of the collapse of this, this central bank system. So their sort of argument would be, well, you know, Nixon took us off the gold standard in 1970s, 1973. Since then, Every you know major central bank in the world has been with some ups and downs, basically printing money nonstop since then. And they're sort of like you know the data supports two interpretations. One is Paul Krugman's, which is like you know this is just a more efficient system, and this is how money should work, and and this is the future. And one is well, what we've done is we've taken all this risk and we just pushed it off into the future. And at some point, yeah, you know the cows are going to come home. For me, that's the narrative around Bitcoin that makes sense that what this is, is you're buying a hedge against this collapse. So, you know, maybe Krugman is right and everything gets paid down and it all works out hunky-dory. But if he's wrong, you know, I don't know, maybe you own some, some gold or some Bitcoin or you have some other investment strategies that sort of protect you from that. Couldn't it be the case that both sides are right, that the very technology that now presents itself as merely a hedge is the technology that presents the sorts of efficiencies that would allow us to pay down such a deficit. Yeah, that's interesting. Because there's this school of thought that's sort of like technology is going to come and save the day. It's the same argument I've heard really smart engineers make about the risks presented by carbon emissions. People say, look, technology is going to come 20 years from now and save this problem. People say it about the economy. Technology is going to come along and you know, the next internet boom is something we can't even imagine, and it will allow us to pay down these sorts of debts. And maybe it looks something like cryptocurrency. I hadn't thought about that. That's possible. I think one of the things that is different now, it's not clear how significant this is, is that 
the drivers of the sort of post-World War II boom were very geographic. Like if you were Henry Ford Jr. and you owned the Ford factory, like you were like locked into Detroit. And so like the fact that the tax rates went up to 70% or whatever, you couldn't like pick up and move to some like lower tax jurisdiction. Whereas, you know, the drivers now, because they're all digital, and this is sort of the whole geo-arbitrage, Tim Ferriss thing, but you can imagine this happening on a much larger scale. The people that would be potentially paying down that deficit are sort of incentivized to to not do that. Do you have those people move to what Hong Kong or Estonia or wherever? And so now all of a sudden you have sort of the the wealth producers are moving away from the countries with the large deficits because well, you you can grow your way out of it, but if you can't grow your way out of it, you either have to raise taxes or you have to inflate the money, which someone with a bunch of money would not like either of those options. Today's show is sponsored by Empire Flippers. They're the leading specialist in helping entrepreneurs buy, sell, and invest in online businesses. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, Empire Flippers integrated, dedicated teams make sure that you're supported at every stage in the process. And they have a huge audience and great contacts in the industry. So for sellers, you're going to secure a higher price than if you were to sell privately. And if you're a buyer, they're going to save you a ton of time and money by carefully vetting all the businesses on their marketplace. So whether you're looking to buy or sell anything from $20,000 up to seven figures, check out empireflippers.com slash TMBA. And if you go there, you can save yourself 300 bucks. That's because today for TMBA listeners, the Empire Flippers have offered a free business valuation, which normally costs $300. So if you're looking to acquire a business, new offerings are posted every Monday morning. So that's empireflippers.com slash TMBA. And a huge thanks to the team over at Empire Flippers for supporting the TMBA podcast. Since we got into the internet ballgame, we've sort of seen these waves of opportunities come down the pike, particularly for young people to create a career and a living for themselves. You know, it used to be that starting in a small business was a particularly risky, cash intensive endeavor. Still can be, of course, but then all of a sudden, like Google came along, and if you were one of the first people to understand their algorithm, you know, you could make a great deal of wealth for yourself by just being in front of that. And then all of a sudden, affiliate marketing came along, and then all of a sudden, you name your epoch, it's like Amazon marketing, and then it was this and that. Does cryptocurrency represent that opportunity in 2018 in the same way that, say, Amazon was that opportunity in the early 2010s? That's a good question. I think that was sort of, when I started getting involved, that was sort of my thesis. And so I think cryptocurrency over the long run is certainly one of those things that's going to provide a platform and there should be lots of businesses built on top of it. It's not clear to me if that's the case over, say, like the next three to five years. Like in a lot of ways, cryptocurrency sort of looks like clean tech looked 10 years ago where like everyone sort of agrees on what needs to get built and there's like a lot of funding to build those things and so like things will get built and they will be good but no one will make any money because all you know the investors all over invested the entrepreneurs took too much money a lot of sort of the bottlenecks in the industry are not like end consumer bottlenecks it's like not it's really hard if you want to build sort of a consumer facing dap a decentralized application 
that's right now that just like doesn't look very possible. And it's possible that changes 12 months from now. And it's possible that doesn't change for 10 years. So it's like almost like what these other platforms did was they offered almost like a consumer level opportunity for entrepreneurs. And it sounds like what you're saying is that doesn't quite exist in the cryptocurrency world just now, except for purely being a speculator or investor. Yeah. So there was a post that was sort of, was fairly influential called, it was the FAT protocol thesis. And so the idea was, if you'd been a venture capitalist or an investor and you had the choice between investing in Coinbase, which is a, a Bitcoin exchange, it's, I think, a multi-billion dollar company at this point. It's like by far the most successful company in the ecosystem from a, like a venture capital investor perspective. If sort of on the day they did their seed round, you had the choice between being the earliest investor in that company or just buying Bitcoin with that same amount of money, you would have been better off just buying the Bitcoin. And so the idea was, well, these sort of protocols are different than sort of the internet protocols like HTTP or TCP IP because they can accrue value. So like, well, why would you invest in this company on top of the protocol? Because if Coinbase works, then like Bitcoin's going to work too. And so, okay, I'm just going to buy this underlying thing and whatever happens on top of it, it's fine because I'm going to have a, a piece of sort of the action. It's like almost like getting a chance to become a shareholder in Ruby on Rails in 2003. Right, exactly. At what point does that change? At what point are you better off investing in? Because, you know, Bitcoin went from, you know, 30 cents to $6,000, which is a 100,000 X thing. And like, is Bitcoin going to go up another 100,000 X over the next eight years? Like, almost certainly. I, I think it's literally not possible. So, you know, at what point does the scale sort of tip and all of a sudden actually, you know, this underlying protocol is already really valuable and like there's not that much more market for it to capture, but like the things on top of it are suddenly really valuable. So I don't, I don't know when that, that point is. Like, yeah, I think it could be anywhere between 12 months and 10 years from now. When you pull up the historical price of Bitcoin, I mean, we're talking about a relatively short history here. I mean, we see like total flatline from 2011 to 2014, where Bitcoins are, you know, 10 bucks or less. Then all of a sudden you get to 2014 and Bitcoin jumps up to like mid 100s, like so 500 to 1000 bucks. And then in early 2017, something completely changes. And now all of a sudden, you know, even with this big bust that you're talking about, we're still looking at a Bitcoin price as we talk today at over 6,000 US dollars. Does the Bitcoin community have a narrative as to what happened? I mean, the price just sort of hung there for years. And now all of a sudden we're looking at a six times valuation from where it had stood for years. What's the story you're hearing about what's changed? Well, it goes back to sort of the, what I was talking about earlier, this idea that it's not just a new company, it's a new type of asset, and there's no, no one agrees on how to value it. Sort of the way I've heard, have heard money explained is everything we call money is a bubble that has not yet burst, right? So gold is in a 6,000-year-old bubble that like the actual you know, underlying industrial use of gold represents something like you know, maybe 20 or 30% of its market capitalization. So it has this monetary premium of 70 or 80% where just because everyone, you know, someone else agrees that there's this monetary premium, you can sell them a gold bar for $1,200 an ounce instead of $200 an ounce, which is what it's, you know, sort of as a, just a commodity it would be worth. So a lot of these cryptocurrencies, that's what these valuations are, that people are basically buying 
an option on this being the future reserve currency of a new ecosystem that it seems reasonable or it seems quite possible to expect that 10, 20 years from now, this ecosystem as a whole will be worth trillions of dollars, you know, potentially tens of trillions of dollars. And now it's worth $300 billion. Does it happen in 10 years? Does it happen in 30 years? Does it happen at all? And so there's no really, there's nothing anchoring the price. There's no sort of underlying you know, like gold's price is at least anchored by its use in jewelry, you know, it's using microchips, there's like actual sort of industrial use cases for it. Whereas this is very, very reflexive. Bitcoin is only worth $6,000 because like a bunch of people that own Bitcoin convinced a bunch of other people that it was like worth $6,000. There's uh, kind of a commentator in the space who calls this uh, like a Nakamoto scheme, like a Ponzi scheme, right? It's like everyone's just sort of, you know, you buy your Bitcoin and then you start telling all your friends about it and they buy Bitcoin, which makes your Bitcoin more valuable. So then you know, they want to tell their friends about it, which makes Bitcoin more valuable, which is true, but which is also just like, that's how money works, right? Like everyone agrees. You know, in the case of you know, like fiat currencies, like the U.S. dollar, ultimately it's money because you have to pay your taxes in it, and if you don't pay your taxes in it, men with guns will show up at your house and take you away. But you don't necessarily have to. You could use Bitcoin for your everyday transactions and pay your U.S. taxes in dollars if you wanted to. Is it fair to describe your recent report, the state of Bitcoin in 2018, as sort of a review of different ways people? are looking at the value of Bitcoin and the ways in which they're attempting to value it. In the report, you lay out a bunch of different ways and the pros and cons of each in terms of taking the temperature of the value of Bitcoin. Could you describe like one of those methods that people are using and one that interests you specifically? I would say the most popular one is something called network value to transaction ratio. So basically what you're doing is you're just taking the total value of the network, which with Bitcoin, I would say it's $150 billion or something like that. And you're dividing that by the transaction value. So over a 24 hour period, how much money, how much value worth of Bitcoin was sent over the network. And so sort of the idea there is that as more value is transacted over the network, it's inherently more useful. Sort of like the network effect does play in here. Like in order for my Bitcoin to be useful, I need someone else to want to accept that Bitcoin. And so the more people that want to accept that Bitcoin, the more valuable it becomes. So you're essentially saying like if, if everybody starts buying their lattes with Bitcoin, by this measure, then the market ought to readjust the value of Bitcoin to reflect that usage. That's right. I think sort of the more likely scenario than, than people buying their lattes is, yeah, you have something like a quantitative easing, some sort of central bank action Something like that, some sort of shift in the narrative where people go, oh, actually, maybe, you know, the US dollar or the euro isn't as safe as I think it should be. So like, maybe I should put 1% of my net worth in Bitcoin, you know, just in case this doesn't work out. And, you know, if everyone agrees that they should just put 1% of their net worth in Bitcoin, then like now Bitcoin's worth, you know, whatever, $100,000. That narrative, the meme of Bitcoin, like Bitcoin is a virus or Bitcoin is a religion, seems to me like very, very accurate. There may be some listeners baffled as to why we bother because there's so many opportunities to build you know, real valuable businesses that do real things in people's lives, all this kind of stuff. But the reality is, is that me and you know a lot of people who have made more money in a few weeks or a few years than their entire family had made in generations. I'm curious, what has been like the psychological or practical fallout 
in the Bitcoin community and the crypto community amongst early adopters who've become essentially wealthy overnight. So I've met a few of these guys. And I mean, it's fascinating. Like, what's different from sort of this Bitcoin crypto thing as opposed to previous bubbles or financial manias is the retail money beat the institutional money. And so like sort of like the median person that got rich off Bitcoin was like a 26 year old guy who was like at some university and he like rigged up all the computers in the computer science department to like mine Bitcoin in the background in like 2011 when he was 21 years old. And now that's worth $300 million. It's worth like bringing it down to earth too. Like, or what about the entrepreneur who like, because he had some crazy customer who requested it in 2014 decided to like allow their customers to pay in Bitcoin. Like that's a very common story that gets told. There's also just the on a whim, put a couple grand into it five years ago because their smart friends were talking about it. I mean, there's a lot of stories like this coming out of, hey, I, I bought a house, I started a business, I became an investor, I'm a millionaire. One of the interesting things happens is like those people become the new priests, right? They become the proselytizers that sort of like brings in the next wave of converts of parishioners or whatever. There is like a bit of a, like one of my dystopian scary scenarios is like a bit of like religious fervor and zeal around like, you know, now I am vindicated. Like I knew it was going to work all along. There's that segment of it, which is, which is sort of scary. And I, I guess the other people sort of like that, the scenarios you played out, you know, like I put a few thousand bucks in or you know, I set up my shopping cart to accept Bitcoin in 2014. Most of those people I met are just like kind of grateful and like realized they got lucky. Like, yeah, I thought this was cool, but like, no, I definitely didn't think I was going to make 100x on my money in three years. But like, yeah, this is sweet. And now I own a house and I don't have to worry about having a house again. I honestly think there's a little bit of generational frustration. Tell me if you think I'm off base about this, but I don't hear a lot of these stories coming from like 45, 55-year-olds. I hear a lot of these stories coming from like 25 and maybe 35-year-olds. So there's a little bit of like, hey, I worked my whole life and now I got to like take lip from you who did nothing but set up a Bitcoin wallet on your e-commerce store, you know? Is there a little bit of that? I mean, it's definitely generational. The median Bitcoin millionaire is like 27 years old or something. I saw someone tweet a few months ago. It's like the millennial version of Pascal's wagers to put 5% of your net assets into Bitcoin. (laughs) Just in case, because you never know, right? Which is like true in a lot of ways, which is probably really bad. Taylor, a few more questions for you. There was an epoch, a mini epoch. Describe for me what the ICO boom was. An ICO is an initial coin offering. And I'll describe it first from my perspective and you see if I got it wrong. But essentially the idea going around over the last couple of years was, hey, you can launch a cryptocurrency with basically a white paper, which is like a long in-depth report that essentially describes what your coin is going to do. And so there was this rush in the entrepreneurial world to launch a coin and have a quote ICO. It was like a fast way to have an IPO, which can take 10 to 15 years to have an IPO. Why don't you have an ICO? All you have to do is hire a technical writer and a few months down the line. Is that fair to say? I mean, what is this ICO boom? I think that's pretty fair. What sort of happened, the first ICO 
at least that I know of, and it was at least the first like sort of major one was Ethereum. So I think at late 2015, they basically wrote a white paper sort of describing this technical protocol they were going to build that was going to be a quote unquote world computer and allow people to run, you know, permissionless applications. And they said, hey, it's going to be really hard and take us a long time to build these things. So we need to like do some fundraising. So what we're going to do is we're going to issue this token. And if you buy a token, you're going to own that. To- you know, you're going to own that when the network launches. And so they raised something like eighteen million dollars over a few month period. So to compare, in the case of Bitcoin, they had a white paper, but it was like if you want bitcoins, you have to go and mine it. So here's how you earn your tokens. Whereas in the case of an ICO, it's essentially a Kickstarter. You say, hey, I want to go build this thing that you can mine maybe eventually, but first I'm going to need your money. That's right. So that was 2015. You know, Bitcoin had gone from you know zero to four hundred dollars. I think at, at peak in 2013, it was like a thousand dollars. Around 2015, it was hanging out at four hundred dollars. So you had a bit of this narrative. It was like, well, if this is like Bitcoin 2.0 and like this is the next thing, and like you're buying in at twenty cents, you know, a token. What happens if it if it goes up? And again, there's no there's no agreed upon valuation methodology here. There's no discounted cash flow. There's no analysis. So it's like it's all narrative. It's all this meme. And so you know that was what happened with Ethereum. It went from it was less than a dollar at ICO. I think it was like twenty cents. And then in early 2017, it jumped very quickly from about ten or twenty dollars to maybe a hundred dollars. And the other thing it did is it was possible to use Ethereum to issue other tokens. You could just write a white paper. So it became like a platform for people who want to do fundraising for their own sort of technology on top of Ethereum. It was a global fundraising platform. And it was one where, yeah, obviously there's, there's legal stuff, but at least technically anyone could raise money that you're able to write a, a quote unquote smart contract that said, you know, if Dan sends me five Bitcoin, then I'm going to send him back this many tokens to his address and people could verify that you were actually going to do that. All the code was open source. And so they knew, okay, well, I'll get this, these many tokens. So then all of a sudden you had this narrative of like, well, you know, Bitcoin went from zero to a thousand and Ethereum went from 20 cents to a hundred dollars in 2017. And you just saw a lot more of these start to like pile on and pile on. Cause now all of a sudden it was very easy to do this. There was no way to value these things. You like met this random person that was like, oh yeah, I put like $2,000 into a gamer token and like now I'm worth 2 million bucks. I think that sort of like fueled the mania. So the, the ICO boom that happened over the course of 2017 was this idea that venture capital is over. We've disrupted venture capital with this new ICO fundraising model where anyone in the world can participate and we're going to rebuild the whole internet and the entire financial system on this new permissionless blockchain platform and you can own a piece of the future and it's only going to cost you, you know, whatever, a dollar a token. And is this cooling off now or, you know, what's happened? The overall market is down about, I want to say about 85% as of the time. Bitcoin's about down about 70% and then the other ones are down significantly more. So it, it certainly has cooled off, but I think, you know, over the next, maybe there's another bubble or whatever. But if, you know, I think when we look back in 10 years on some of these that are sort of like clearly a joke, like they're clearly scams and sort of anyone that's done any research into them knows they're scams, but they're like still worth a billion dollars. That's insane. A few weeks ago, we talked about what does your city whisper on this program? 
Paul Graham ends that article by sort of suggesting like a good move for young people is to go to the epicenter of wherever, you know, good things are happening at a good time. I'm curious if you have a sense for if you want to get involved in cryptocurrency, where is the in crowd for this stuff? Where are people hanging out? So I think cryptocurrency is unique in the sense that, you know, in this stage of its development, like if you were to sort of go back and look at, you know, the internet or social media or something, there was like a clear geographic center. And like historically for the tech industry, it's been San Francisco for finance, it's been New York, entertainment, it's been LA. There's not a clear geographic center. So, you know, like I would say Berlin, New York, San Francisco, Hong Kong, London. There's a few, Zug, Switzerland, which has some sort of like regulatory arbitrage that's being done there. So it seems like the epicenter is less kind of a geographic place and more something like a combination of Twitter and private chat rooms and like a conference circuit. That like all the people that are sort of in your thing are going to like these three conferences and we're going to go and hang out and get to know each other, talk about what's going on. And then we're all going to like hop into these. A lot of it happens sort of on private chat groups now and talk about, you know, whatever the developments in the industry and what's going on. Taylor, I'll leave you with a hard and potentially illegal question. I don't know if you're allowed to, let's not give out investment advice here. Yeah, this is not investment advice. Let me put you in my boots for one moment. Would you take that Pascal's wager if you were me? Would you take right now in 2018, would you take 5% of your net worth and put it into Bitcoin? Yes. If you could take 1%, maybe 2%, maybe the 5%, I think is like fairly aggressive, but something on that order of magnitude. Yeah, I think the probability that 10 to 20 years from now, this broader ecosystem is worth trillions of dollars, potentially tens of trillions of dollars, is like a reasonable probability, you know, something like, you know, 20, 30%. And so if you sort of like run the expected value on that, like, okay, it's $300 billion now, it could be worth $10 trillion. That's, you know, 30x. What other investments are, you know, potentially 30x over that time period? And, you know, you do the expected value calculation. Okay, it's 30x, but there's only a 30% chance. So actually, it's only 10x. Well, do you have anything else you can do with that money? It's probabilistically going to earn you a 10x return over the next 10 years. And if you do, and you have a business and it's making, you know, 5x a year, like you should put that money into the business. That makes a lot more sense. But, you know, for a lot of people, that's a potentially, if not life-changing, like a meaningful financial impact. So I think that sort of way of thinking about it is, that was how it was like initially pitched to me and that, that sort of still makes sense. It's an asymmetric payoff where you can make a relatively small investment that's probably worth nothing, but maybe worth a lot. And that if you sort of run the probabilities times the potential outcome, it seems like a pretty good bet still in 2018. Taylor, I appreciate you swinging by the show. And I, I hope this becomes a segment. Call it Market Watch with Taylor. <laughs> Let us know where we can get your report and what the best ways are to follow your information about Bitcoins and cryptocurrency specifically. Yeah, so the report is on my site. That's probably the easiest place to go. My site is taylorpearson.me. If you sign up for the email list, I will send you updates on new reports and articles. And then uh, I spend a sadly huge amount of time on my life on Twitter. I'm at Taylor Pearson Me, and I would love to talk to you there because. I got lots of time. Taylor, we appreciate it. Thanks for coming by. Thanks. Whether you're into Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, or whatnot, it's always fun to listen to what Taylor is thinking about. 
he's so generous with his knowledge. Check him out at taylorpearson.me, friend of the pod. Always looking for excuses to get on the horn with Taylor. Of course, he's just one of the writers in this space. There's many, many views out there. I don't think we're intending to present a decisive view. We want to hear yours. What do you think about this topic of Bitcoin? Deserving of the hype or a total snooze fest? Let us know. This one will be posted over at tropicalmba.com slash state of Bitcoin. Thanks for listening to the show. We will be back next Thursday morning. 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.